chapter 3. If you would turn there. And let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, that you are indeed our Father, that we've been born again into your family, that you have called us, that you have chosen us, you have blessed us so richly with uh, blessings in the spiritual places, food, water, clothing, shelter, everything that we need. The relationships we have, Lord, they're all gifts from you. We thank you that you are, you are unchanging and perfect in all your ways. We love you and thank you for an opportunity to hear from you today through your word, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we'd be receptive. We would listen to what you're saying, that I wouldn't stand in the way. Lord, fill us all with your spirit so that we can hear what you're saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea chapter 3 is where we'll be. Just uh, to bring us up to speed, We're going to go back to the beginning, that God created man from the dust of the ground, breathed into him a living soul, and God made man for a relationship. God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone and sought to find a helper comparable to him. And among all that God had made, there was nothing found. So God created, God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, removed a rib, and from that rib created Eve, woman, because she came from man. And God joined Adam and Eve together in marriage, and that's a picture of the, it's really a shadow of the kind of intimacy and relationship God desires to have with us. God's given men and women, he's given people a capacity that other animals and plants and chemicals and things in, uh, in, the, in the things that he's created, he's made man unique in that um, We can love God and know him as we are loved and known by him. And love doesn't exist in a vacuum. So God created man as a conscious being who could receive his love and respond to it. If you ever have a chance to read G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, it's a great book that talks about how man is different from every other created thing. And then he, based upon that, he moves on to say, well, Jesus is unlike any man who ever lived, that he is in fact God who's come to to earth. And uh, God has placed in us this thirst for knowledge and, and a delight in hearing something new, learning things, to explore, to understand, to converse, to have a relationship, to be known to be loved, to be remembered. Those are things that we value. And God created us needy so that we might recognize that he is the one who has supplied all our needs. And the eternal God, he's not dependent on his survival like we are for on air and food and water or gravity. He's not um, hungry or thirsty. He's not, he doesn't have this, like, uh, uh, this insecurity So he's created people to kind of pump him up and like, I want some compliments. So I'm going to create people to praise me because the angels, you know, that's not quite enough for me. So he wanted people too. Um, God created the world to express who he is to people so that our eyes would be open to see him and to praise him and to know him. And it's like God had the audience now to pull back the curtain and reveal his great love in saving the world, in saving Noah, 
when there was all that sin. He revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He called the nation of Israel to be his special people as he revealed himself through miraculous power. He brought them out of Egypt. He gave them his law. He sent uh, the prophets to them. He gave them the Psalms. And the prophet Hosea, he was sent to the northern kingdom after God's people rebelled from him. They forsook him and went after idols. And he used the life of Hosea the prophet as a parable to show the relationship uh, that he had with his people had been broken and how he loved them and would see them restored to himself. Kings, prophets, priests, people, their idolatry called for judgment, but God was pursuing them because the Bible says, whom he loves, he corrects. God corrected them. And uh, so verse one, Hosea chapter three. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. In chapter one, Hosea was told to marry a, a harlot, someone who had been involved in prostitution named Gomer. They had some children together. The first child was biologically his. The next two, it's not so clear. One of them was even named uh, Not My People or Not My Child. It's, it's an odd name to name your child, but she was still prostituting herself, even in that marriage relationship. And God compared his relationship to Israel like Hosea, where he says, love a woman in harlotry. Love a harlot. Choose to love her. And now she has left the home. She's engaged in prostitution. And he says, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover, so she has a lover, and is committing adultery. So she is actually being pimped out. She's practicing prostitution at this time. And he says, go again, love her. Isn't love a costly, amazing choice? Do you suppose that Hosea felt like loving her when she left the home and did these things? And the love of a spouse, it can endure this. A love of a parent for a child, it can stand rebuffing and rebellion. But that's just a, a shadow of the love that God has for people. God's love, it's an active love. When, when, other pe when people push it away, when they run from him, he still pursues. He still calls. He still delights in us because God's love isn't about what he gets out of us. It's what he delights to give us out of his goodness. So Ho Hosea seeking Gomer when she was presently committing adultery, he says it's like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. They're looking to other gods. They're going after these idols. They've put raisin cakes, sultanas, in my place. They love the food of the pagans. They, that was something they would eat when they would uh, be worshiping their false gods. And they love the feasting. They love the carousing. They love all that was not of God. It's just like, can you imagine putting sultanas in God's place? It's just crazy, right? But it's even crazier that God would love someone who does that. 
that he would pursue them and restore them. Because God desires to make broken people healed and whole. That is his intent. Now, the law of Moses, it gave people the permission to divorce their spouse because of infidelity. Hosea had the legal right to divorce, but it's not a command to divorce. And he says, go again, love this woman, bring her back. And so he put the good of his wife above his own legal rights, and he chose to pursue her. And he did as the Lord commanded him. He was determined to love his wife, to buy her, not for a night, but permanently. He did not pay her for services, but he purchased her out of love for her. He loved her, so he went after her. And he paid 15 shekels of silver, one and a half homers of barley. It's about the price that you would pay if you accidentally killed someone's slave, and you'd have to pay restitution. So she had been enslaved in this brothel or to this master, and he bought her and brought her back. No one deserves to receive God's love but it says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What love that God would pursue us in our sinful state. Verse 3, and I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Hosea took Gomer home. He told her to stay with him for many days. It was common among the Jews, and it was actually in the law, that during the first year of marriage, you weren't to pursue any business. You weren't to go out to war. You were to just spend time with your wife. A lot of the marriages were arranged uh, by parents, and that was a time where they were really getting to know each other. They were, they were choosing and learning to love each other, to work through things. Deuteronomy 24.5, it says, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So it's about him making her happy, spending time with her. Now, she wasn't a new wife, but it's like he is, re he is renewing the, their relationship and the marriage. Like the, re the relationship he had with her was more important. She was more important than the relationship or what he had. But he spent all that time. He says, all right, you're not going to go out and play the field. You're not going to go looking for lovers. And I'll be the same towards you. I'll be faithful to you, but I'll be staying with you. I'm not going to spread myself thin with all these responsibilities. Like I am going to also uh, remain in a bit of isolation with you to spend time with you for many days. He doesn't say how long, just many days. Doesn't put an end date on it. He wanted his, and, and he, it's like their relationship wasn't to be based upon, you do a favor for me, I'll give this to you. Kind of like a transaction. It was more like, you be with me and I'll be with you. He wanted her to be comfortable and love being with him and that he and what he provided would be enough. So he, he loved his wife, he redeemed her, he bought her out of slavery so restoration and healing could take place. And verse 4 says that this is what God was doing with the northern kingdom of Israel. They would be without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or teraphim. 
For a long time, they had looked to kings to set the pace in how they worshiped God. And the kings were offering up sacrifices on these high places. They weren't leading in the right way. And they, they looked to worship at these sacred pillars. The people sought counsel from ones who had the ephod or burned incense to these images. The relationship with God had been corrupted by paganism and idolatry. And faith and obedience had been replaced with greed, selfishness, and abomination. So God's like, I'm taking away all these false supports. I'm taking away the temple worship. I'm taking away the king that you've looked to for security. I'm just stripping all these things away so that Israel will come back to me. And they will follow me and they will love me. It's like, you're only going to be left with God. Is, is he enough? And God would stay with them. He would not forsake them. Verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Because of their sin, God would destroy the north, allow the northern kingdom to be destroyed. Those who had fled to Judah, they would go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. But after that 70 years, a remnant would come out and again live in Israel again. The temple would be built. They wouldn't have a king again. The temple would be built, and then the temple fell in 70 AD by the Romans. And since that day, Israel has been without king, shrines, temple. Uh, and in 1948, Israel was declared a nation. People began to return to the land, and God's like, they're going to do more than return to the land. They're going to return to me. It's me that they're going to return to. And then it says, they would return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, when this was written, David had been dead many years. So who is this referring to? God made a promise to David that he would have a son, and he would have a kingdom that he would establish forever. So it's none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one they will turn to. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 6, has this great passage about how Jesus is God, how he's greater than the angels. I'll just read that to you. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, and he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So Jesus, the son of God, he is the one who will have an everlasting kingdom. And God says, Israel is going to turn to the Lord and fear him in the last days. And we are in the last days, not because of the current events in the Middle East, not because of something we can, we, we don't need to see that as proof because the Bible says that we're in the last days, in Hebrews and in other places. Did you pick that up where it says, God in these last days has spoken to us by his son. 
So the Bible says we're in the last days. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter said to the people, he quoted from Joel in Acts 2.17, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So when that happened, he says, this is evidence, the fact that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are in the last days. This has been fulfilled in your, in your uh, presence. John wrote to believers in 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So not just the last day, but the last hour. It is, is the last time in which we live. And Peter said of those who questioned, well, hold on. It's been a long time. We've been in the last days for how long now? And he says, well, don't forget, people, that a thousand years is as a day to the Lord, and a day is as a thousand years, that he is outside our confines of time. We think this is taking forever. You notice that the older you get, things seem to be quick, like it's already halfway through the year. And you get used to waiting, and like I remember we had a layover at airports. We had a, 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 like an eight-hour layover in Hong Kong, and then like 12 hours in Tel Aviv, and once you've waited that long, and I'm like, a five-hour layover? Pfft, nothing. No problem. But after like 10 minutes, kids are like, oh, are we, are we almost ready? Like, come on. It's so terrible to have to, to have to wait. And we're like that child. It's just like, hold on, wait a second. But we are in the last days. The Bible says we are. Now, one, one day this will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where he will set up a physical throne, and the people will come to him. We read of this in Isaiah 55, 3 through 5. Jeremiah 30, verse 9, if you're taking notes. And we don't have to wait for the millennial reign to have a renewed relationship with Jesus. We can have one with him right now when we repent and trust in him. We say, Lord, I choose you. I choose you now. Over the other options that are presented by this day, I choose you because I love you because you have the words of life. Moving on, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. In chapter 4, there's a very swift uh, shift of perspective now from the life of Hosea to God speaking to his people. And he says, I have a charge to bring against you and against the land because I made a mutual agreement with you. I made a covenant with Moses. And you all said, everything God has said we will do. And they repeated it over and over throughout the, uh, the Torah the first five books of the Bible. In the infancy of the nation, he gave them his laws and ordinances, but they forsook them. They did not regard them. They did what was right in their own eyes. In the days of Noah, God looked upon the world and he said, there's great wickedness because the imagination of everyone's heart is only evil continually. It's like, that's a lot of evil. It's a lot of wickedness. And so judgment was coming to the world because of their sin. But now God looked upon his people. 
people he had given his law, people who hadn't agreed with him, people to whom he had preserved and saved. And, and he's looking for righteousness. He's looking for them to be listening to him. But instead, there's adultery and there's murder and there's lying and there's no truth. He's saying, like, you have my truth and you're not walking in the truth. The body count is stacking up. You've cast off all restraint. You're not, you're not following me at all. It was like sin was multiplying in the land, like flesh-eating bacteria in the body. And it would only be a matter of time before the symptoms were impossible to ignore. The fever, the, the discomfort, the illness. God said, there will be a blessing if you follow and obey me, but there will also be a curse if you choose to forsake me and rebel against me. And that's where they were. They were in that place of rebellion, departure from God, and so famine, sickness, pestilence, defeat by their enemies, being taken captive. That was all spoken of in the law. It's like there's no surprises with God, but we're always surprised when something happens. When there's an actual consequence for sin, we can be a bit like, whoa, that seems a bit strong. It's a bit harsh. He's like, I told you what would happen. But God never says, I told you. He just tells us. He's not gloating. or like, I told you, you guys should have listened to me. We, we say that. But God just speaks. He is patient and compassionate. So the land, it says, would mourn. It would waste away with the beasts and the birds, even the fish. Now, in New South Wales, we haven't been strangers to drought. We've seen the pictures of the dead livestock on farms or the countless dead fish floating in the Murray-Darling Basin. In the city, we don't feel the pinch of drought like the farmers who are counting on that rainfall to grow their crops or to support their flocks and herds. But all Israel would feel this judgment. It would be undeniable when city after city was burned and fell. When, when they were just retreating further and further south to avoid the Assyrians that were coming through and ravaging everything, and no one could stop them. And they're like, where's God? And they say, well, you ran away from God. You forsook the Lord. So this is why judgment is coming. God had shown mercy to them. They used their power to oppress one another, to kill, to steal, to, to lie. And the big issue, he says, there is no knowledge of God in the land. Because the truth, that springs from the fear of the Lord. It says in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. They didn't know God. That was the chief problem. God looked upon his people to expect truth, mercy, and the fear of the Lord and when he looks on us, he, he actually has a right to expect even more. Because we have the Holy Spirit who's dwelling inside of us. We've been born again. And he's written the law, not on tablets of stone, but on our own hearts. He's given us a conscience. And he speaks the truth to us. And he's made us a community in Christ. that We are one body with Jesus as the head. And he's able, just like I am able, to wiggle this finger if I want He's the head, and he decides who moves and who does what. And we're all part of him, part of his body, made one with Christ. So we're to love one another as Jesus loves us. We're to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. We're to speak the truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Our yes should mean yes, and our no mean no. 
And so when God looks at me, when he looks at you, does he see trust in him, obedience to him, speaking the truth, loving one another, forgiving one another? Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe, but there are still consequences as a believer for sinning against him. It's just like when you're, you have a son. It would be very odd to say, well, I never disciplined my son because he's my son. Well, it's exactly why you would discipline him. It's because he is your son and you love him. So as a responsible dad, that's your role. And because we are God's children, he will correct us. And so that we will be kept from our own destruction. Judgment begins the house of God, as it's written in 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. It says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So judgment is begin with me not looking at others, but examining myself in light of God's truth. Verse 4, Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The priests in Israel were to be of Aaron's line. And God held them accountable to teach the people about God and his ways. Not all priests in Israel were godly men. We see that with Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we see God's judgment against the priests almost straight away. Remember uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They had just been sanctified and they chose to burn incense to the Lord that God didn't command. And so fire from the Lord came out and consumed them. And that was like, wow. Like if they just said, remember Nadab and Abihu, you'd be, wow. I'd put the fear of God in you, really, in a very literal sense, that you would be like, I need to take my role seriously, that God's called me to this, and that there is a certain uh, obedience and responsibility that I have before God to do what's right. Because he's going to hold me accountable. It's not the people. It's God. But the, the priests had wandered from the Lord. It says uh, in Deuteronomy 17, 12, the way that people were to respond, they, were, they would bring their issues before the priest, and the priest would take the matter before the Lord. And he would determine, according to the law, what was the right course of action. And the people were supposed to do it. It says, Deuteronomy 17, 12, now the man who acts presumptuously presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. So the consequences of not listening or arguing with the priest, when he says, this is my judgment about the land, you guys, someone moved the boundary. This is where the boundary should be. This is where the land that you receive by lot. And you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. And so you move it back. Death penalty. So he says, you guys, you're like the ones who are arguing with the priests. You're the ones who are undercutting what they're doing. You are worthy of death. You're like that. Like, understand where you stand right now. It's very shaky. 
It, you are in a place of condemnation and facing judgment. So he's just warning the people where they stand with him because they could say all day long, hey, we're God's people. We're his chosen nation, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But he was really shocking them, I think, into understanding where they stood. As believers under the new covenant, Jesus Christ is our high priest. We're to heed and obey him. And if we won't hear him, then we too will stumble in darkness. He says, the people of Israel, they'll stumble in the day. The prophet will stumble with you in the night. That's not a good thing. They would go to the prophet to hear the word of the Lord, and he's like, he's going to be stumbling right along with you. There's going to be no, you guys have forsaken truth, and so there'll be no truth that's solid under your feet. It says there, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I've heard this verse hijacked to mean a lot of different things. In context, the main issue was the lack of the knowledge of God. That's the main one. They knew a lot about God's law. They could tell you when the feasts happened, what offerings or sacrifices were required at the feast. They could recite certain prayers. They could tell you the songs that would be sung. The amount of knowledge these people had of the law would put a lot of us to shame. But the problem was they didn't know God. The lack of the knowledge of God was their problem. Because they had no knowledge of God, they had not valued his word. Like if you guys know someone and they say something, and it's someone that you respect, you'll listen to it. But if you don't know somebody and they say something, you're like, who cares? Who's that? I really, that has no impact on my life at all. And that was like God talking because they didn't know him. They didn't know God. And so the things that he said, they, they disregarded. They'd never adopted it. They never took it to heart. It's like they went into, the, the words went into their ears and, and were memorized in their heads, but it never made it to their heart and it never made it to their decisions. It never made it into their real life. And that's why they were killing each other and lying and stealing each other's spouses. They professed to know God, but in works denied him. In Titus 1, 15 and 16, it says, this is still happening now. You say you know God, but you're not following me. You're not, there's nothing about you that resembles me. So do you know me? And he says, because you've rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me, speaking to the priests, because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The call of the priesthood, it was passed down from generation to generation. And he's like, the priests who have forgotten me, it's like, I will not uh, pass along the priesthood to your children. You've forgotten me, so your child is not going to be the next priest. The priests, it says in Malachi 2.7, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest was a messenger. He wasn't like the oracle. He would go to the law and give, make the sense and help them to understand it and give a judgment on a matter. It wasn't their opinion that mattered. It wasn't their age or their status in society. It was God's word they were to look to. And it's good to remember Christianity is not a status. It's not a, uh, a title. It's a relationship with God because we are known by him and we know him, we love him, we choose him. 
Remember when the thief on the cross said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Have you ever thought how odd that was that he's speaking to a man who is nailed to a cross? That's an odd thing to say. When you're dying and you're addressing Jesus, he did that believing a few things. He believed that Jesus would live beyond the cross. He believed that Jesus could and would remember him. And he also believed that he would come into a kingdom and sit on a throne, alive. He believed that. And what does Jesus say? Amen. Verily I say unto you. And the word literally for verily there is amen. And I want Jesus to say amen to me. Say, Jesus, remember me. Amen. So be it. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said amen to the repentant thief who could never serve him in any way off of that cross. And yet he rejected the priests who did not know him because they forgot God's law. Hosea 4 verse 7. The more they increased, again, speaking of the priests, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord." The more priests they had, you would think the more priests, the better things would be. It was quite the opposite. The more priests they had, the more uh, greed and theft. And it says they were almost, they were hungry for the people's sin. They eat up the sin of his people. They set their heart on iniquity. When people brought a sin offering, the priests, that would be part of that would be their portion to eat. That was a way that they were sustained under law that a portion of the sacrifice is made, that would be for their food and the food of their family. And so they're like, you need to keep sacrificing and sacrifice more. So the more, they, they almost delighted in people's sin because that meant more was coming in, more coming into the coffers. They could fill their stomachs. And God's like, guys, the more you're increasing, the more you sin, I'm gonna change your glory into shame. The things you're glorying in right now, you're gonna look back and see it as shameful. The privilege that I've given you, it's going to be taken away. And the sad thing is many of the priests exchanged the glory of God in worshiping and sacrificing to idols, raisin cakes. That was what they worshiped. They, they set their hearts on that. They set their heart on sinning. He says, like people, like priests. How tragic it is to set your heart on sin. Have you ever had your heart set on something? We use that term where as a kid, you're looking forward to that party. Your heart is set on going. You're just focused on going and then you get really sick and you can't go. You're just bummed out. Like, man, I had my heart set on that. Or you, there's this thing you wanted to buy and you saved up your money and you go to the shops and it's gone. And you, there's no more. The last one has just been sold. Or you missed out on something that you had just, maybe you can identify with this one. You're at work. 
it's a long, hot day, and you're thinking, man, I got some special ice cream in the freezer. That's going to be good. At least I have that to look forward to. And you come home, and you open the freezer, and you're like, and you look in the bin, look, there it is. Like, who, how did they know that I was looking forward to that? Like, all day, that, that, that sustained me, that, that I was going to have this to look forward to, and now it's gone. You're like, ah, except their heart was set on sin. There were sinful things that they're like, I can't wait for this. I can't wait to do that. And that's a tragedy when your heart is set on sin rather than on God. Like, if our heart is set on anything that's not God, that's problematic, right? Now, there's a lot of things that we do get our hopes up for and our hearts are set on, but even when the Bible says if, if riches increase, we should not set our hearts on them. That's not where our affections should lie. It should be on God, on knowing God, and then righteousness in our life will spring from the fear of God and the knowledge of him. David, when it says he was a man after God's own heart, it wasn't that he was like God in some way. He was, a, he was a guy just like us. But his desire was for God. He says, like a deer that's panting after sprinting, is panting for that water, I thirst to know the living God. I have this desire to pursue and to draw near to God. And when I am thirsty, I look to him for refreshment, to sustain me, not to stuff, not to my, my, even my spouse or my kids. I look to God and I just thirst for him and I'm hungry for him. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to know him. Psalm 57, 7, he says, my heart is fixed, oh God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. It's like my heart is set on God. My, my desire is fixed on him. It's not moving. He's my security. Do we set our hearts on the Lord? Can we say that? Yeah, and I, if, if I, because there's areas where we don't. That we would, we would be reminded to set our heart on the Lord. When you have that disappointment in your life, know that God can't disappoint you because he always does exactly what he says. And ex actually, he does far more than what we expect. He reveals that by his spirit. So he says, according to your deeds, you will be repaid. You're going to eat but remain hungry. You're going to pursue many idols in a quest for wealth, but impoverish yourselves. You're going to commit harlotry with many lovers, but you won't have children because you've ceased to fear me. The fruitfulness from your life, it's going to dry up and be no more. Lack of knowledge of God led to a slow death in God's people. Please turn to Amos chapter 8, verse 11. After our study in Hosea, we'll move to Amos. He was another prophet who spoke to the northern kingdom in Hosea's day. Amos chapter 8, starting in verse 11. It 
says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. People desperately sought to hear from God while they were in the midst of this sinful conduct. They even sought his word. And God said, I'm going to send a famine of hearing my word. You'll go from sea to sea. That's a pretty long journey to hear the truth from God. Like, what do we do? What do we do with the Syrians coming? What do we do with the Babylonians now? Like, how, how are we going to respond? And he would send a famine because they rejected the knowledge he already provided them. It's kind of like this. It would be like an illiterate person who aspires to be a judge. And they go, okay, man, I really want to be a judge. What do I have to do? You go, well, the first thing would be to learn how to read. You go, yeah, but aside from that, like, what should I do? You're like, well, you're not going to get very far in your pursuit to be a judge or a solicitor if you don't read. Reading is really not my thing. But I really want to do this thing. I want to have this role. I think the status is great. So what do I do? Uh, something else. Come on. Hit me. I'll do anything. But you won't do the first thing. So that's basically where we're going to be until you choose to humble yourself and say, okay, it's a bit embarrassing being 35 and not being able to read, but I'm going to learn how to read because I, I have this end goal. So I'm going to start where I need to. God's like, I've given you my law. I've given you my truth. You're not walking in it. So because you refuse to listen to me and you refuse to obey, I'm going to make a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. You're going to look for it. You're going to run to and fro. You're going to be desperate to hear from me, but you're not going to hear a thing because you've rejected knowledge. You've rejected my word. You've rejected me. You don't even know me. And he wanted the people to come to him just like Gomer where she had been purchased out of that brothel. He says, let's spend some days together. Don't go running after everything. You just stay with me, and I'll stay with you. In your Christian walk, have you ever wanted to know what to do? Like, just tell me what to do. I want to, just tell me what it is I have to do. Like we want to do something to, to help our situation or to know uh, what's God's wisdom in moving forward. More than us knowing what to do, God desires we would know him. That's what he wants. We want to just know step A, step B, step C, and just do something. But he's like, I want you to know me. That's what I want. You want to know what to do? I want you to know me. And if you know me, guess what? You'll know what to do because we'll be together. God said in Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor there shall be after me. Jesus is the one, says my servant whom I have chosen. He has come that we may know and believe him. We can know God. 
This word know, it speaks of intimacy. It's the same word used in Genesis 4 verse 1 where it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That verse became the springboard for my uh, sex ed as a child in my family. Because I heard that, and I'm like, whoa, 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 what just happened there? We would always read through a chapter of the Bible after dinner, and so Adam knew Eve, his wife. And they had a, okay, now, what does that mean? What does it mean to know like that? What does that mean? Oh, so when my brother and sister were younger than me, I was probably, I don't know, six or seven, they'd go, oh, uh, your brother and sister can go. Ben, you hang around. Okay. And they told me all about knowing in a different, like, uh, I was like, okay. And it was just fine. I was, it, it made perfect sense at the time. But there was a, just to know someone in that way, in a very not, in a completely non-sexual way, is the way that God wants us to know him, where everything is laid bare and everything is open. There is nothing to hide. There is no shame. There is just an embrace of husband and wife. That it's a shadow. It's just, it's just like the edge of the relationship God wants to have with us because the relationship he has with us goes far beyond physical desire or sexual activity. It's a union of him and us as one. God wants us to know him and he wants us to choose him. When Hosea... Um, bought Gomer, it wasn't because of her looks or what she could do in the household. He's like, ah, you know, without her, meals haven't been too great. I'm not a great cook. I really would appreciate it. That wasn't why. It's because he loved her. Because God said, love her and go get her. So he did. He, lo- he chose to love her and he went after her. And he didn't do it out of obligation. Well, she is my wife. She's in a bad situation. I need to pull her out of that. That wasn't it either. It's because he loved her. He loved her. And that's the love that God wants us to have for him, that we choose him. He's the one who's brought us out of the slavery. He's brought us out of the bondage. And we have opportunities not just to choose him when we are born again, but to keep choosing him. And I had this thought as I was putting the message together. It's like, you know, instead of checking my messages for the 10th time, in a day, or checking the news where nothing really seems to be happening. How about seeking God? How about choosing, you know what, God? I could watch this right now. I could look at these things, but instead of being entertained, instead of being informed, I am going to choose you. I'm going to choose God right now. For the 10 minutes that I'm here, for the five minutes, I choose you. And from that will spring a knowledge and a relationship with God because you're beginning to pour into it and he will begin to pour into your life when you start choosing him instead of choosing everything else that's laid before us, the raisin cakes that taste sweet in our mouths, but they don't satisfy. God did not save us out of pity from hell or because he needs another servant. He didn't save us from sin so we could just go to heaven to be with him someday, but he saved us for a relationship with him to have today, so we could know him, love him, and choose him like he's loved and chosen us. Will you choose Jesus today over other things? Because we love him. 
Because we want to, not because we have to, or we'll feel guilty if we don't. We are those adulterers and adulteresses unworthy of God's love, thieves worthy of death, deserving crucifixion, yet he has redeemed us and he's offered us the privilege of his presence, of knowing him and loving him. How special we are to him and how blessed we are to know him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it pierces us, that it it reveals the thoughts and intents of our heart. And Lord, forgive me when I have not chosen you and I've been content to, with the raisin cakes of this life when you have, you are everything for us. In you is life, love, truth. May your truth and may your wisdom be evident in our lives, not just because we, we know what to do, but because we know you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us like this, that you would, demonstrate your love for us while we were still sinners when we were far from you and we were totally in sin against you you have brought us out you've brought us away as from slavery to fear and slavery to lusts and slavery to pride and and to selfishness and greed thank you lord for the freedom we have in jesus to pursue you all the time to come into your throne of grace boldly to find grace to help in time of need thank you lord for everything, because for everything we have comes from you. We honor and glorify and extol your name because you are worthy. Lord, cause us to know you in a deeper and more profound way, even as you know us. In Jesus' name, amen.